This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa. Did you hear that the critically acclaimed series Famous Fates is back with a brand new season? It's true. You can now hear season two titled Falls from Grace exclusively on Spotify. Join Carter and I as we examine the factors, both personal and circumstantial, that turned epic tales of fame into tragic ends of shame. Available for free and only on Spotify, Falls from Grace releases two new episodes every Wednesday, each focusing on a different scandalous figure. And as a special treat, here's today's episode on the controversial life of film director Howard Hughes. If you'd like to hear today's other episode on disgraced filmmaker Roman Polanski, head over to the Famous Fates feed and subscribe for free today. But remember, these episodes are only available on Spotify. Imagine a withered old man lying naked in rumpled bedsheets. His long matted hair, his scraggly beard just as overgrown, His yellowing nails haven't been caught in months. Surrounding him are boxes of Kleenex and piles of discarded tissues. He wipes down everything he touches, because despite his own filth, he's terrified that germs will sneak into his bedroom sanctuary and kill him. Of course, it's hard to actually see any of this. The windows are blacked out and the room is illuminated by little more than the flicker of a television screen, which the old man is said to never turn off. It's not likely that this is the image you dredge up when you think of America's richest men, or most powerful. But this was the exact picture of Howard Hughes at the height of his power, when he sought to put the American government in his pocket. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. And this is Season 2 of Famous Fates. In this season called Falls from Grace, we'll examine once-revered historical figures whose stories ended in less than savory ways. Just like on last season of Famous Fates, we'll look at what drove these fascinating people to the top and then delve into their appalling demises. We'll examine the factors, personal and circumstantial, that change their stories from epic tales of success to tragic falls from grace. And we'll give you all the dark details of what lay on the other side of those falls. The figures we're tackling this season will run the gamut. We'll look at everyone from financiers like Bernie Madoff to queens like Marie Antoinette, 
to Hollywood producers like today's subject, Howard Hughes. They're a diverse lot, but they all have one thing in common. They were beloved for their incredible accomplishments until they were reviled for their sins. You can listen to all ParCast originals on Spotify or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. So without further ado, Howard Hughes. It was January 19, 1937, and 31-year-old Howard Hughes was soaring through the sky in his Hughes H-1 racer, a plane he helped design under the auspices of his aerospace company, Hughes Aircraft. Today, the H-1 was going to smash the record for fastest transcontinental flight from Los Angeles to Newark, New Jersey, a record Howard himself had set just over a year earlier in another plane. Los Angeles pulled away beneath him. Home these days, Tinseltown couldn't get enough of him. They wanted him producing every project so they could get their hands on his enormous reserve of dollars and his creative eye, too. But today, he wasn't Howard Hughes' renowned producer. Today, he was Howard Hughes' record-breaking aviator. Today, he had a plane to push to its outer limits. It was a rough flight. His oxygen mask failed. He almost passed out. But Howard kept going, refusing to give in, refusing to fail. And after seven hours, 28 minutes, and 25 seconds of cutting through chilled January skies, Howard landed in Newark, New Jersey. He'd done it. He'd broken the record by nearly two hours. And the first thing he did to celebrate was send a telegram. It read, am down and safe at Newark. Love, Howard. Catherine Hepburn, his glamorous actress girlfriend of the hour, received the message with happy relief. Howard Hughes had it all. Respect. Wealth, beautiful Hollywood girlfriends, determination, intelligence. A golden finger that seemed to turn everything he touched into a success. But it wouldn't last. The same obsessive perfectionism that had pushed him to the top would take over his life and leave him a shell of the all-American golden boy he once was. Of course, when a little baby was born into the Hughes family in December 1905, all that doom and gloom was far in the future. Howard grew up wealthy in Houston, Texas, thanks to an ingenious invention of his father's, a two-bit drill that revolutionized the oil business. Mr. Hughes never sold the bits, leasing them instead, and thus secured an empire that would sustain not just him and his wife, but also provide the seeds for his son's extraordinary wealth. Howard's early life wasn't all silver spoons and sports cars, though. His mother was an extremely anxious, hovering parent, and he was struck by bouts of illness that pulled him out of school. Still, Howard was close with his parents, and he was devastated when they both died just two years apart. 
his mother in her late 30s of a pregnancy complication in 1922, and his 54-year-old father of a heart attack in 1924. At 18, he was an orphan, and there's evidence that he started to spiral into depression. But this was still the early Howard. He was young and handsome, six foot four and slender, and suddenly he was worth the equivalent of about 15 million in today's dollars. Howard decided to use his money to leave Houston and the past behind. In 1926, at the age of 20, he packed up for Hollywood, where he planned to develop his childhood interest in technology by pursuing two equally glamorous fields, flying and the movies. The move at first went well. 1920s Tinseltown was welcoming to passionate upstarts, especially ones with money. Not to say it was perfect, The first film Howard produced, 1926's Swell Hogan, was a consummate disaster. Howard, already an obsessive, dedicated perfectionist, was so horrified by the flop that he ensured the film never made it to theaters. But Hollywood was less exacting than Howard himself. It gave the young upstart another chance. And this time, Howard hit his stride. His next two films were financially successful, In 1927's Two Arabian Nights even won the first Academy Award for Best Director of a Comedy Picture. But it was 1930s Hell's Angels that really catapulted young Howard Hughes to Hollywood production stardom. The film, a wartime aviation epic, combined Howard's two loves, flying and film. Perhaps that's why he was so particular about it. He started out as the film's producer, but was such a nitpicking, interfering perfectionist that multiple directors dropped off the project. Howard, however, wasn't deterred. He took on the role of director himself with particular interest in the flight scenes. And he dedicated himself to the new creative role with at least as much fervor as he'd put into producing. He poured $2.8 million into the project, much of it his own money, and constantly pushed the film's deadline. His specific decisions included recasting the female lead when he decided to turn it into a talkie rather than a silent film, and constantly reshooting flight scenes. He even crashed a plane during shooting himself, and though he clearly survived, several of his stunt pilots weren't so lucky. Three men died during production thanks to the grueling schedule and daring aviation tricks Howard demanded. These deaths were little talked about. After all, in 1930, flying was a far more dangerous pursuit than it is today, and a few deaths were perhaps to be expected on a project of Hell's Angel scale. Another 1930 production, Such Men Are Dangerous, beat out Hell's Angels for the award of worst aerial accident in film history by a wide margin with 10 men dead after a mid-air collision. Still, the perfectionism underlying the deaths was another mark of Howard's obsessiveness, even in his triumphant early years. His perfectionism, however, was effective. Throughout the 1930s and World War II, Howard remained a national golden boy. 
He was deeply respected in L.A. for his work in film. He was constantly dating Hollywood's most beautiful women, which ensured his name was constantly in every tabloid paper around the country. And to the delight of a flight-obsessed world in the 1930s, he shifted his attention from producing hit films to breaking flight records. But he wasn't just a dashing young sportsman with a good eye for making movies. He was also quickly turning from the son of a millionaire into a powerful businessman in his own right. In 1932, at age 26, he turned his passion for flying into a lucrative new business, the Hughes Aircraft Company. In 1939, he began acquiring stock in the airline TWA, expanding his empire and wealth even further. And during the war, he picked up various government defense contracts, eventually becoming one of the largest suppliers of weapon systems to the Air Force and Navy. But despite his glittering image as a talented movie man, a daring pilot and a captain of industry, it wasn't all smooth sailing for Howard Hughes. One of his World War II defense contracts was for a giant flying boat, as it was called, built mainly from wood thanks to wartime metal shortages. But his constant insistence on revisions and improvements slowed down production and ate up the project's budget, leaving him with nothing to show for the contract before the end of the war in 1945. Howard, however, was too respected a businessman for this to look like a mere accident. The Senate was suspicious that he'd misused government funds for the project, shifting them to private business ventures instead of pouring them into the plane, and they called him forward to testify in 1947. Howard, however, handled the courtroom with panache. He convincingly argued that he was a patriot and left the Senate with a promise. If the flying boat fails to fly, I will leave the country and never come back. He did indeed meet that promise, flying the enormous plane over Long Beach Harbor on November 2nd, 1947, for one astonishing, crowd-pleasing mile. But the flight brings us to the other hiccups of these apparently jubilant years of ever-increasing success and power. The crashes. There were multiple incidents, both in planes and cars, and many of them left Howard with head injuries. The worst one was in 1946. He crashed right into Beverly Hills. His plane and body were shattered, and he was apparently on the brink of death. Miraculously, he survived. However, he still suffered from immense pain, which his doctor prescribed him codeine to cope with. And since the pain from his injuries never quite went away, he continued to use codeine for the rest of his life. When, in later years, Howard's prolonged use of the drug, as well as other painkillers, made its way into the press, much was made of his possible addiction. In the 21st century, as medical understanding of persistent pain has developed, some doctors have reassessed, suggesting that Howard's usage was likely less addiction and more what we call now pseudo-addiction, reliance on a substance for the management of persistent physical pain. 
But regardless, whether it was the head injuries, the drugs, or just the process of aging, Howard was starting to change, and the people around him were starting to notice the cracks in his gilded surface. Jean Tierney, one of the many Hollywood actresses who had dated Howard for a time, described it this way. There had been a boyish, clear-eyed quality about him. Now the eyes had turned beady, the face had tightened. Rather than adding character, the scars only aged him. Combined with his obsessiveness and his need for control, the changes in Howard would lead to some astonishing behaviors. Behavior that at first looked like the unsavory machinations of any other powerful Hollywood man, but eventually became uniquely appalling. Up next... Howard Hughes tumbles from the skies down to a dark, isolated Beverly Hills bungalow. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In 1947... 41-year-old Howard Hughes was on top of the world. He was still handsome, still dating Hollywood's leading ladies, and still internationally beloved for his work in both film and aviation. He was also one of the richest men in America. For the next decade, thanks to the dual protections of wealth and fame, he would maintain his gilded reputation. But in reality, things were starting to change. First, there was his collection of women. He'd historically been interested in women around his own age, but in the late 1940s and 1950s, after acquiring his own film studio, RKO, he started seeking out young starlets or wannabe starlets. He'd sign them to exclusive contracts and then place them in bungalows where their diets were monitored and they were forbidden to date. Occasionally, he'd sleep with them, although many of them never met him at all. In return, he gave them singing and dancing lessons and promised to put them in the movies. This alarming treatment of girls and young women showed an increasing need for control. But typically for the era and industry, this behavior didn't attract much attention, at least not in the press. Contractually, Howard may have wiggled out of any unpleasantness by putting most of his harem into the 1955 Arabian Nights film, Son of Sinbad. And on the surface, he seemed to be carrying on with the glamorous life of a Hollywood playboy. In 1957, he even got married to the beautiful 30-year-old actress Jean Peters. She was 21 years his junior, but in 1950s Hollywood, or even 1950s America in general, this was not dreadfully unusual behavior. Still, things only got worse. Late in the spring of 1958, he heard that his usual screening room at Goldwyn Studios had been used by the all-black cast of Porgy and Bess. He didn't like that. He'd always been racist since his turn-of-the-century Texas childhood and perceived black people as dirty, he wouldn't share a screening room with them. 
So Hughes announced to his aides that he wanted to screen some movies at a new location, Nosex Projection Studio on Sunset Boulevard. He entered the dark room alone, shut the door, and started the movies rolling. Then, for the next three months, he stayed there, in the screening room. At first, he wore a white shirt and tan slacks, often talking with his lawyers and bankers on the phone to check in about business affairs. Then, slowly, he stopped the calls. He stripped off his filthy clothes, and he announced to his aides, Don't try to get me for anything. Wait until I call you. I don't want any messages handed to me. In this state of increasing isolation and filth, Howard did have some company. Surrounding him were Kleenex boxes. He used the tissues to wipe down the surfaces around him, and the boxes he continually stacked and restacked. These were habits he would retain throughout the rest of his life, and are one reason for later speculation that he suffered from severe obsessive-compulsive disorder, or OCD. Perhaps it's fitting that when he disappeared into the dark of the theater, he told his wife, Jean Peters, that he was in the hospital getting treated for an undiagnosed disease. For Howard, the obsession fueling his tissue compulsion was a growing terror of germs. He'd been fearful of germs for a long time, avoiding handshakes even in his early years in Hollywood. But now his nervous distrust had grown into a full-blown terror. Another compulsion that may have emerged during Howard's initial period of isolation in 1958 was the 52-year-old's need to constantly watch movies. There are various explanations for it. Some commentators think he was studying the craft of filmmaking. Others have suggested he was trying to take his mind off of the physical pain that never went away after his 1946 crash, despite the coding. But while he may have felt either or both of these motivations, Howard's constant and insistent need to have films playing certainly fits the bill of a compulsion, too. When 52-year-old Howard finally emerged from the theater at the end of the summer of 1958, he hadn't washed, trimmed his nails, or cut his hair. And he wasn't ready to now, either. He continued many of the habits he'd cultivated in the theater at the Beverly Hills Hotel in a pink bungalow, where, despite his own filth, he became even more obsessed with germs. The danger, after all, came from outside, not from him. It was about contamination, about the uncontrollable outside getting in and hurting him. So he established some rules. First, he designated the select group of people who were allowed to deal with him personally or even handle anything he planned to handle. This rapidly shrunk to a small crew of Mormon aides who Howard reportedly liked because they worked hard, lived clean, and didn't drink. Every move of this carefully selected group was governed by an ever-growing, hyper-specific procedures manual. To see Howard, they had to go through a 30-minute purification ritual called processing. Hands had to be washed four distinct and separate times, using lots of lather each time from individual bars of soap. 
Then supplicants had to don white cotton gloves. Often they'd enter Howard's bungalow to find Howard sitting naked with nothing but a pink Beverly Hills hotel napkin on his lap. Once in his room, they were forbidden from touching Howard directly. Instead, they did things like pick up his memos about business matters or cap jars of his urine, which he demanded be stored in his Bel Air garage. He couldn't bear to let it go. It was his. It belonged to him. The Mormon aides weren't the only ones subject to Howard's rules. His wife, Jean, didn't escape his ever-heightening need for control either. She wasn't invited into bungalow number four. She was kept in her own bungalow. She was highly discouraged from leaving the hotel. And when she did go out, she was instructed to go out with an escort. The escort, meanwhile, was equipped with detailed memos about her care. For example, when going to the theater, they were instructed, if necessary, to open the doors entering the theater or closing the doors, do so with the feet, not the hands. If it is necessary or common procedure to enter the theater with her to lower the seat for her, do so with Kleenex. While Howard's obsessive, controlling behavior was evident from his earliest days in Hollywood, he clearly took a turn for the worse in mid-1958. For the much worse. It's not excessive to characterize the shift as a mental breakdown. But if that much is clear, the reason for this mental breakdown is a more difficult question. To answer it, we have to look back to the period preceding 1958 and do a bit of speculation. In his book, Citizen Hughes, Michael Drosnin argues that the breakdown was likely triggered by Howard's sense that he was losing control through the 1950s. While from the outside, he may have appeared on top of the world, his wealth ever-growing, his status as a Hollywood legend cemented, in fact, he was losing some of the direct control he'd always cherished. First, the Pentagon forced him to give up personal management of his aviation company, Hughes Aircraft, in the wake of his 1947 Spruce Goose scandal. Then in 1955, he had to sell off RKO. The dying studio system and internal conflict made it an untenable business. Next, in 1957, Howard's chief accountant, Noah Dietrich, quit his job. He'd managed Howard's business affairs for over 30 years, serving as something of a surrogate father. His loss felt like abandonment and betrayal. Finally, there was TWA, Howard's airline. He needed more investment for the company, but the bankers wouldn't give him the money without increased control over the business. As Drosnin puts it, it was all too much. Everything was slipping through Howard's fingertips, and he couldn't contain everything the way he'd contained the fallout of Swell Hogan. It had all gotten too big. Hence the breakdown, the rapidly accelerating paranoias and obsessive-compulsive behaviors. What he could control, he would control. Few people outside of Howard's immediate circle understood that. Sure, Howard Hughes had disappeared from the public eye, gone recluse, and that was a bit eccentric, 
And of course, his enormous wealth cut two ways. On the one hand, it helped maintain a glamorous mystique around his disappearance from public life. On the other, it added a sinister air to his disappearance. Suddenly, the man behind the empire was simply a question mark. And in fact, for all Howard's paranoia about losing control of his empire and strange secretive behavior, he would only get richer. In 1966, Howard was still spending the large majority of his time secluded at the Beverly Hills Hotel. It's likely that he couldn't come out of that seclusion to appear in court and fight for full control over his airline, TWA. So Howard Hughes sold. For $546 million. It was, to date, the largest check to ever go to a single individual. Which brings us to the darkest, most dangerous way Howard Hughes was grasping at power in his fight for control and ultimately safety. He was using his enormous wealth to buy the U.S. government. Coming up, Howard shakes the very foundations of American democracy. Now back to the story. In 1958, at the age of 52, Howard Hughes began suffering from an apparent mental breakdown, and it didn't get better. His lifelong tendency towards obsession and a need for control spiraled to new extremes as he hid away from the world in Beverly Hills Bungalow Number 4, only seeing a small group of Mormon aides. But all the while, his wealth was growing, culminating in a 1966 buyout of his airline, TWA, which left him with $546 million in easy cash. Today, that's equivalent to almost $4.5 billion, and that was far from his whole fortune. Howard's wealth enabled his mental illness in many ways. It allowed him to hire the people he needed to take care of or control his wife. It bought him 24-7 attention from his Mormon aides, who tended to his every anxiety-fueled need. It ensured that he was left undisturbed at the Beverly Hills Hotel by either hotel staff or nosy outsiders. And in 1966, he used his new windfall to switch to a new, more secluded hideout, the Desert Inn in Las Vegas, which he eventually purchased outright, ensuring total control over his environment. But he knew his money could do more, buy him more power, more safety. So he started scooping up Las Vegas real estate, casino after casino. He wanted to run the city while still living in near-complete isolation. But there was a small problem. Las Vegas is governed by antitrust laws. One man wasn't supposed to own a whole casino on his own, much less seven. So Howard doubled down on the classic rich man's way out. Showering politicians with money. But Howard didn't care about political parties, and he didn't care about keeping his gifts on the official campaign contribution list. He was happy to pay for whatever a politician needed paid, whether those expenses were personal or political. In Nevada, he used these practices to get in with the state governor, Paul Laxalt, and then to circumvent antitrust laws. 
But his ambitions didn't just stop with Nevada politicians. To truly secure his little desert empire, he needed national influence. He saw an opportunity for that in 1968, when Democratic presidential candidate Senator Robert Kennedy was assassinated. Hughes wrote the following memo to his chief bag man and fixer, Robert Mayhew. I see here an opportunity that may not happen again in a lifetime. I don't aspire to be president, but I do want political strength. I want an organization so that we would never have to worry about a jerky little thing like this antitrust problem, not in 100 years. The kind of setup that, if we wanted to, could put Governor Laxalt in the White House in 1972 or 76. Later, he clarified what exactly he wanted Mayhew to do with this opportunity. I want us to hire Bob Kennedy's entire organization. I am not looking for political favors from them. I repeat, I don't want an alliance with the Kennedy group. I want to put them on the payroll. As Howard explained, it wasn't that he wanted one particular favor from a given politician. He wanted power and control that would be there whenever he needed it. He wanted the government on his payroll. And while he didn't succeed in hiring the entire Kennedy organization, he did succeed in getting Larry O'Brien, Bobby Kennedy's campaign manager, into his bookkeeping. A useful man to have in your pocket, considering he'd go on to be the head of the DNC. But not all of the politicians Howard Hughes sponsored loved his association with that organization. Which brings us to Richard Nixon. Howard Hughes supported Nixon throughout his political career. As far back as 1956, when Nixon was vice president, Howard had loaned the Nixon family what would amount to more than $1.5 million today. Nixon's brother, Donald, used the money to bail out his failing fast food chain. Of course, usually when one gives a loan, it's secured with something of equivalent value. For example, a mortgage which is secured on the value of your home, and of course, it's eventually repaid. Hughes' loan to the Nixons, meanwhile, was secured with an empty piece of land valued at $13,000, a fraction of the loan value, and was never repaid. As in, it sounds a whole lot more like a gift than a loan. No strings attached. Or perhaps with a few strings. As soon as the money had changed hands, the IRS approved the Howard Hughes Medical Institute as a tax-exempt charity, after twice previously having declared it a device for siphoning off otherwise taxable income. This suspicious so-called loan made its way into the press in the final days before the 1960 election, when Nixon was first running for president and the scandal may have impacted his chances in the hotly contested race. As he put it, I must have answered questions about the Hughes loan at least a hundred times. The media loved the story and played it up big because it was so damaging to me. Still, it did nothing to cool Nixon's appetite for Hughes' money. During the 1968 election season, Nixon and Howard connected once again. 
This time, the Hughes money tying them together was a cool $100,000, about $750,000 today. And instead of going right to the Nixon family, it went to a bank account in the name of Charles B.B. Rebozo, Nixon's close associate and confidant. Presumably, the purpose of this unofficial campaign gift was of a personal nature. Nixon could get it from Rebozo when he needed it for his private expenses. As for Howard, it seems to have proven useful, too. Soon after the money changed hands, he weaseled his way out of some legal issues with his Air West takeover. He'd been indicted for conspiring to manipulate the airline's stock, defrauding shareholders of $60 million. An airline which, it's worth noting, was the beneficiary of multiple route franchises and mail subsidies. This time, the money, carefully concealed in Rebozo's account, didn't make its way to the press, and Nixon finally sailed into the White House. He was sworn in as president on January 20th, 1969. Meanwhile, in 1970, Howard gave up on Nevada. He didn't like the nuclear tests that the government were running in the desert, despite his petitions to have them stopped, or the fact that despite his extraordinary wealth and power, there were other wealthy, powerful players bidding on Las Vegas. Perhaps it's no surprise that a man so obsessed with power and control would want to find somewhere where he'd be the only big fish around. He was waffling between Mexico and the Bahamas. He wasn't sure which would allow him greater political influence. As he put it in a memo, please consider the problems in obtaining empire status. In the end, it was the Bahamas. Despite Howard's lifelong racism and, as a result, his distrust of a black government, Paradise Island seemed like his only escape from the constant threat of nuclear contamination and rivals in Nevada. On November 25, 1970, he was carried out of the Desert Inn via the fire escape by his Mormon aides, wearing clothes for the first time since he arrived four years earlier, blue pajamas. He was six foot four and just over 100 pounds, emaciated after years of lying in bed and picking at food. His hair, meanwhile, was almost 24 inches long, uncut for years. A sorry sight. One that would have shocked the media and the many politicians he had bribed for power and influence at both the DNC and in the Republican White House. This was the man behind the curtain? The man pulling the puppet strings? But no one got a chance to see him. He was ushered into an unmarked van under cover of darkness, then carried onto a private jet, and finally to another ninth-floor hotel penthouse, this time in the Britannia Beach Hotel on Paradise Island. Like his room at the Desert Inn, this one had blacked out windows. Howard hadn't come to Paradise to see it. He'd come to escape the dangerous contaminations in Nevada. And the escape, practically speaking, had gone well. But that was just on the surface. Beneath the surface, Howard's mental and material conditions were declining. In 1970, after years of communicating solely by phone, Jean Peters filed for divorce. 
the separation was finalized in 1971 when Howard was 65. Despite Howard's shaky condition since the early days of the marriage, losing Jean was likely difficult for Howard. On the one hand, because he was the kind of controlling, possessive man who couldn't even bear to let go of his own urine. And on the other, because he probably actually loved Peters in his own way. He never spoke ill of her even after the divorce, nor did she speak ill of him. Despite the fact that there was no non-disclosure agreement attached to her divorce, despite the fact that she was offered many lucrative opportunities to write or speak about her ex-husband. For years, the couple had communicated by phone nightly. But Peter's loss was likely fairly abstract for Howard. The loss of Robert Mayhew, on the other hand, was more immediate. Mayhew had been Howard's chief intermediary with the outside world for years, despite the fact that the two had never met. He was Howard's bagman, his correspondent, his main social contact, perhaps in a way, his friend. But Howard's mistrust and paranoia didn't just focus on germs or on collecting politicians to protect his power. With some help from his Mormon aides and other executives in his business empire, Howard started to turn against Mayhew and his move from Vegas to the Bahamas cemented their split. He was cut off from some of the only social contacts he'd had left. And there's evidence that what remained, the Mormon aides, were deliberately invested in encouraging Howard's isolation and paranoias. After all, the less he saw of the outside world, the more he relied on them. Finally, to top off all these issues, Howard's business ventures weren't going as well as they once had. He was plagued by losses in the Vegas businesses and fines for his Air West dealings, despite the fact that the takeover had gone through. He was still extraordinarily wealthy. It's just his expenses were proportionally large and he didn't quite have the cash on hand to meet them. Back in Washington, things weren't going so well either. President Richard Nixon, almost if not quite as paranoid a man as Howard, was starting to get worried about the most recent $100,000 Howard Hughes had gifted him, the $100,000 that greased the gears of Howard's Air West takeover, the $100,000 that never went into Nixon's campaign fund, but rather sat waiting in B.B. Rebozo's bank account for whatever personal expenses Nixon needed paid. But Nixon's paranoia about the money wasn't that it had been found out in general. He was worried specifically that Larry O'Brien had found out about it. Larry O'Brien, the Kennedy's former campaign manager and now chairman of the DNC, was on Howard Hughes' payroll, just like Nixon was. And Nixon had caught wind of that fact. Now, Nixon wasn't sure if O'Brien knew that their benefactor was mutual. He had no real evidence. But if he had learned about O'Brien's connection to Howard, O'Brien might very well have learned about Nixon's connection, too. And that, of course, would be very bad. The DNC hated Nixon. He knew it. They wanted to take him down any way they could. They'd use Howard Hughes' money against him in a heartbeat, just like in the 1960 election. He couldn't let that happen. Absolutely not. But he had to be reasonable. 
Perhaps O'Brien didn't know about the money. Perhaps he was safe. He'd have to collect intel and find out the truth. Then he could decide how to proceed against O'Brien. So on June 17, 1972, the Nixon administration sent five burglars to rob the DNC Washington headquarters. That's one version of what went through Nixon's head prior to Watergate, anyway, and the version that Watergate Senate investigators believed. While it's impossible to say for sure that the Howard Hughes money was the primary motivator behind the crime, the theory does check out. After all, one man buying both the Republican president and the DNC chairman was bound to lead to chaos. Howard Hughes was so paranoid and power-hungry that he catalyzed one of the worst crises in American political history. In his book, Citizen Hughes, which focuses on Howard's involvement with Watergate, reporter Michael Drosnan characterizes Howard as the portrait of Dorian Gray. Dorian Gray here being the broad corruption plaguing American politics in the time of Richard Nixon. Howard was far from the only player involved in the Watergate scandal, but his declining physical and mental state reflected just how ugly things had gotten in Washington long before the cracks started to show at the White House. And in his late 60s, he was declining even more quickly. His body was covered in bed sores. He was excruciatingly thin and malnourished, and his mind, perhaps most of all, was increasingly teetering into a chasm of delusions. He wasn't just watching movies now. He was watching them on repeat, namely his favorite film, Ice Station Zebra, a 1968 spy thriller set in the Arctic, which he watched over 150 times, and also his least favorite of the films he made as head of RKO, 1956's flop, The Conqueror. He reportedly spent millions of dollars buying up every copy in existence, just as he'd once tried to bury Swell Hogan, his first film. But this time, instead of hiding away the copies, he's said to have watched the movie every night before going to bed. His personal projectionist, of course, wearing a blindfold, so only Howard would see the screen. He was also reportedly completely unable to grasp the Watergate situation as it unfurled between 1972 and 1974. The products of his labor had escaped him. On April 5th, 1976, at 70 years old, he died. He was flying from his final residence, the Acapulco Princess Hotel in Mexico, to the Methodist Hospital in Houston, his hometown. The cause of death was kidney failure, which had been exacerbated thanks to decades of drug use. And likely, Howard's penchant to refuse the advice of his doctors. As one of them put it, he made his own decisions about everything. How very Howard Hughes. In the end, Howard was a man of his times from start to finish, a Hollywood wonderkind when the movies were the beating heart of an enthusiastic young nation, a pilot when flight was the fresh, exciting frontier of human achievement, a man of industry and power when, in the post-war world, America was beguiled by its own wealth and power. 
a corrupt, power-hungry, delusional man when the country realized it couldn't trust its leaders. But like most people whose glorious beginnings lead to appalling ends, Howard's dark tendencies were there from the beginning. That's the case with the next man we're covering in Falls from Grace too, Roman Polanski. Like Howard, he was a beloved Hollywood filmmaker, director of classics like Rosemary's Baby, until he became a fugitive from the law, fleeing charges of drugging and raping a 13-year-old girl. Thanks again for tuning in to Falls from Grace. We'll be back next week with two more episodes. You can find more episodes of Falls from Grace and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Falls from Grace, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Falls from Grace on Spotify, just open the app and type Falls from Grace in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll be back next week with another story of remarkable success and even more remarkable downfall. Falls from Grace was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Falls from Grace was written by Nora Battelle, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Famous Fates Falls from Grace. Remember, you can catch two brand new episodes every Wednesday, but only on Spotify. Make sure and subscribe to Famous Fates for more scandalous stories, free and only on Spotify.